Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All right, so in the 60s, there was the famous song by the birds. You guys should all know it. To everything, turn, turn, turn. There is a season, turn, turn, turn. And a time. That's, that's the text that we're in today, okay? So we are in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, and that's the most famous passage in Ecclesiastes, and there's that bird song. Um, as you guys know, my son Aiden is off at college, and one of the things that we miss around our house is the playing of the electric guitar. It's very, very quiet in our home because Aiden played it incessantly. And one of his favorite songs to play is a song by Pink Floyd. Some of you are like, I don't even know who Pink Floyd is, but he loves to play the guitar solo to Pink Floyd's song, Time. Now, I don't know if you know anything about Pink Floyd or their album, Dark Side of the Moon, but that album is influenced by the book of Ecclesiastes. And so that song, Time, is, I'm not going to read you all the lyrics, but if, if it's one of, it's like, it's a really like if you like Pink Floyd, it's their, one of their best songs. But it starts out with this ticking of these clocks. And then it goes on for about, oh, probably about a minute of these ticking clocks. And then it starts out with the song. But anyway, some of the lyrics, and it sounds just like Ecclesiastes, is ticking away the moments that make up a dull day. You fritter and waste the hours in an offhand way. Kicking around on a piece of ground in your hometown, waiting for someone or something to show you the way. Tired of lying in the sunshine, staying home to watch the rain. You're young and life is long and there's time to kill today. And then one day you find 10 years have got behind you. No one told you when to run. You missed the starting gun. And you run to run to catch up with the sun, but it's sinking, racing around to come up behind you again. The sun is the same in a relative way, but you're older, shorter of breath, and one day closer to death. Inspiring, right? So I'm going to ask you guys a question tonight about fearing God. When we talk about what does it mean to fear God, I want to give you a couple of examples of someone who doesn't fear God. Anybody ever heard of Francis Crick? You might know who Francis Crick is. He was born in 1916, died in 2004. He was the co-discoverer of DNA. He was the one out of England that basically discovered DNA. But through his life, now think about this. If you discover DNA, how intricate does that have to be? But he became an avowed atheist and rejected intelligent design with all of that evidence right in front of him. And this is what he said. This is a quote from Francis Crick. Quote, you would be more likely to assemble a fully functioning and flying jumbo jet by passing a hurricane through a junkyard than you would be to assemble the DNA molecule by chance. In any kind of primeval soup in five or six hundred million years, it's just not possible. But yet, he rejected that there was not even God, but even an intelligent designer. So instead of seeing the miracle of creation in DNA with the scientific evidence right in front of his face, what does he choose to do? There is no God. 
Now, it's easy for us to pick on atheists and say, well, of course, atheists don't fear God. They're atheists. But my question then is, what about Christians? How often do we fear God? So the big question tonight in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3, verses 1 through 15 is, how do you grow in your fear and worship of God? How do you grow in your fear and worship? Do we need more chairs? Can somebody go to another classroom and grab? There's a bunch of classrooms around here. Maybe grab some more chairs. Um, is Risa in here? Risa, I think when we set up this room next time, we may need to add more chairs. So, okay. So, all right. So, how do you grow in your fear and worship of God? Now, here's the thesis of. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, 1 through 15, here's his main point that Solomon is going to drive home. We got it? Okay. Because God is absolutely sovereign over everything, we should stand in awe of Him. Yes, this passage of Scripture deals with the absolute sovereignty of God over all things and then the response as us as believers to fear God because of that. So let's read the words of Solomon, chapter 3, 1 through 15. And you may have that bird song going through your mind when we do this because that's how we start it. So. For everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to break down, a time to build up, time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live, also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is a gift. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what's been driven away. Okay, there's three parts of this passage of Scripture that we are going to look at. Part one is in verse one, and this is what I call a confident declaration. What does he say there in verse one, this confident declaration? For everything... 
There is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Notice the repetition of the words. Everything, every matter. What he's saying confidently is Solomon is pronouncing a confident declaration as his thesis. God is absolutely and meticulously sovereign over everything. Meticulously and absolutely. Those are key words. What does it mean that God is absolutely sovereign? God's either sovereign or he's not. Meticulous. What does meticulous mean? Over every detail. Okay, God is absolutely and meticulously sovereign over everything. For everything, there's a season and a time. Key Hebrew word there. The word time in Hebrew means appropriate, right, appointed. It's the, everything has an appropriate, right, appointed, ordained time. In other words, there's nothing random in the world because God sovereignly and meticulously governs everything, even time itself. Now, God is outside of time, is he not? But he has created time to keep us sane. We are time-bound creatures, and God is sovereign over time. Now, this is called the providence of God. Providence. We don't use that term a lot in our culture today. We may say, providentially, this happened, or, you know, by God's providence. What is the providence of God? Well, one of the the best um, expressions of this comes from the Heidelberg Catechism, which was one of the catechisms that came out of uh, the Reformation, and um, in, du- in, in, in um, the, the Dutch and the, the Continental Reformers. And so there's two questions as far as the providence of God. I like the way that they, they word this. Question 27, what do you mean by the providence of God? What's the providence of God? Here's, here's the answer in the catechism. The almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, by his hand, he upholds and governs heaven, earth, and all creatures, so that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yes, and all things come, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. I think that's what the the, the Heidelberg Catechism would agree with Solomon here. All right, what advantage is it to us that know that God has created and by his providence does still uphold all things? Question 28. That we may be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and that in all things which may hereafter befall us, we place our firm trust in our faithful God and Father, that nothing shall separate us from His love, since all creatures are so in His hand, that without His will they cannot so much as move. So this is Solomon's confident declaration in verse 1 that God is sovereignly and meticulously governing everything, especially time itself. For everything, everything, there's a season and a time, an appointed time for every matter under heaven. That's pretty comprehensive, right? Okay, now he could go on and give us a bunch of scientific and theological details fleshing that out, but that's not what he does. Part two, if part one is the thesis, the the declaration, part two is a poetic observation. In your Bibles, verses 2 through 8 should be set apart in poetry, is it not? It's poetry. Okay? He could have used some cold, hard facts about God's sovereignty, but he does it in poetry. 
Now I want you to give you a little, I want to give you a little exercise, okay? The answer's on your sheet, but so you can cheat. But I want you to count up how many statements are there. A time to, a time to, a time. Count them up. And just real quickly, see how many there are. What did you guys come up with? 14 pairs, right? So 28. Okay, so we have 14 pairs of 28. 14, 28, that's what number is that a multiple of? Seven. That's, that's important. That's not random. It's not just he just picked any number. Seven is an important number in Hebrew poetry as well as in apocalyptic literature. When you look at the book of Revelation, the number seven means completeness, fullness. How many days did God create? Six, but he rested on the seventh day. So seven in the Bible is a number of completeness. So this is not an exhaustive list of everything under heaven. So he's not mentioning every single thing, but it is a representative complete list of every human experience you can think of with multiples of seven going up to 14 to going up to 28. He's showing in poetic fashion just how sovereign God is over all things, especially time. Now, when you read this, what does it sound like? A time to, a time to, a time to, a time to. What does it sound like? It sounds like a clock, doesn't it? If you read it out loud over and over again, it begins to sound like a clock. It begins to sound like a metronome. That's the poetry. That's a convention used to help us think about time for a moment. The clicking of the ticking of the clock. And what's the first thing he says there? It's a time to be born and a time to die. Let me ask you guys a question. Anybody have a choice over when they were born? Anybody have a choice over when you're going to die? Is God sovereign over your birth? And he's sovereign over your death? Let's just read a couple of passages of scriptures that teach that. Psalm 139, 13 through 17. This is very familiar. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me. When as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. God has created us intricately, sovereignly. But what does it say there? Every single one of our days have been ordained for us even before they came to be. God is sovereign over our birth. He's sovereign over our death. Psalm 39, 4-5. O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you've made my days a few hand breaths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. And then Job's friends come. Sometimes Job's friends give good theology. It's not all bad theology. This is good theology. Job 14.5. Since his days are determined and the number of his month is with you, and you have appointed his limits that he can't pass. Your days are determined by God. There's a time, and, a, and that word time, again, what does the word time mean? Appointed time, sovereign time, particular time, a, a, a preferred time, a um, specific time. 
Now, what I want to teach you is what's called a merism. Anybody know what a merism is? Not a mermaid. <laughs> a merism. It's a poetic term that you probably don't ever have, probably never have thought of. Okay? A merism is a figure of speech in which two elements stand together for the totality of something. Now, you've seen this before in the very first verse of the Bible. You have a, what's called a merism. In the beginnings, in the beginnings, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, what did he create? The heavens and the earth. Two words, right? But what do those two words represent together? The totality of everything. So a merism is using two words on opposite poles to somehow encapsulate the entirety of the thing. So what we have here are merisms. So when you talk about birth and death, it's a merism basically saying God is sovereign over your entire life. Not just when you're born, not just when you die, but everything in between. It's the sum total of your entire life. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant. A time to pluck up what's planted. Now, there's an appointed time to plant. Do you want to plant flowers in January? You could, but it's not the appointed time. You could be foolish and do that. What do they say here in Sterling? You always plant after Mother's Day. That's kind of the appointed time. Now, here's what I want to show you. If you look closely at this poetic list, I want you to notice the polarities of these life events and how these are in direct opposition to each other. These pairs, they're direct opposites. There are experiences in life that are wonderful and enjoyable and pleasurable. And yet, at the same time, there are experiences that are deeply painful and uncomfortable and grievous. And just look at that. Look at the list. Look at the good things. Let's just go look to the list. What are the, what are the enjoyable, pleasurable, good things in life? A baby being born, planting, healing, building up, laughing, dancing, gathering stones, embracing, seeking, keeping, sowing, speaking, loving, peace. Aren't those all the good things? What are the exact opposites? Dying, plucking up, killing, tearing down, weeping, mourning, casting away stones, not embracing, losing, casting away, tearing, keeping silent, hating, and war. Now again, this is not an exhaustive list, but it's a representative list of everything under the sun. So let's just look at the good things for a moment. A time to be born. What, what's, a, what's a beautiful thing if you're a parent? The birth of your child. That's, that's a beautiful thing. If you're a gardener, a time to plant. That's planting is what? Fun. A healing of a wound. A building of a new house. Laughing with friends. Dancing with joy. Gathering stones. Now, why do they talk about gathering stones? Back in that culture, what did they have to do? In order to build walls or build houses, they had to go out and gather stones together. And everybody would go gather the stones, and it was this big you know, gathering of, of building your, your, your house or building a wall. Embracing. Embracing was probably, in the context of what Solomon's speaking about here, if you look at the Hebrew culture, it's probably a husband and wife kissing for the very first time on their wedding day. The, the, the wedding kiss. Seeking. Probably is in reference to buying things, acquiring possessions. Sowing. Now, mourning and what they talk about, sowing and tearing. Why would you tear? 
In that culture, when they were grieving, when they were mourning, what did they do? They ripped their clothes. They tore their clothes. They tore their garments. Well, what happens when your garment's torn? What do you have to go back and do? You have to sew it back together because you can just go down to Walmart and buy more clothes in that culture. Um, you had a limited amount of clothes. So this first list of the good things are all of the wonderful, glorious, beautiful things that we as humans get to experience. And they're ordained by God. There's a fixed, appointed time for all of these wonderful things to happen. It's God's blessing on us. It's God's appointed time. Um, God is giving us good gifts. And we like that, don't we? The good things, we will always we'll give God credit for the good things. When, I, when things are going good, when my life is good, when I'm getting blessed, praise God, He's sovereign. But what about the bad things and the hard times? Do we have that same attitude toward God or do we say, well, you know, this is just blind luck or this is, I'm just having a bad day. Do we actually see that maybe God has ordained those things as well? So a time to die, a death of a loved one, plucking up what it's planted. There's a time to kill. Now you may ask, well, is there ever a time to kill? Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say there's a time to murder. There's a time to kill. When is it appropriate to kill? If you're a policeman and you have legal authority to shoot a criminal, is that a time to kill? If you're a soldier and you are shooting an enemy combatant, is that a time to kill? Yes. A little bit maybe more controversial, if you're a parent and somebody's coming into your home as an intruder to rape and pillage your family, is there a time maybe to shoot, maybe not shoot to kill? So um, there's a time for that. There's a time for mourning. There's a time for casting away stones. Casting away stones was probably wartime. They would throw stones on the um, fields of their enemies so they couldn't plant crops. Losing, casting away, keeping silent, war, hate. So in poetic fashion, Solomon here gives us his observation of every human experience, whether good or bad. Opposite polarities. Again, this is not a complete exhaustive list, but it's a representative list of every experience that we're going to experience under the sun. And, and his thesis is what? There's a time for everything. God is sovereign over time. God is sovereign over everything. Let me in poetry just illustrate it for you. And he gives this like a ticking of the clock. A time for this, a time for this, a time for this, a time for this. And God is behind it all. Sovereignly, providentially, orchestrating events to his desired end. Now, after giving a poetic observation, so he's given what? The declaration, a confident declaration, God is sovereign. A poetic observation, I've seen all these things. Here's the third thing he's going to give. A theological explanation. And this is in verses 9 through 15. In verse 9, Solomon repeats the main question he asked at the very back, back in chapter 1, verse 3. So go back up to chapter 1, verse 3. This is really the main question that governs the entire book. Chapter 1, verse 3 is the main question that governs the entire book. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? What's the question? What is life worth anyway? Why am I going through what I'm going through? Is this all there is to life? Is this the meaning of life? Why am I doing what am I doing? What am I gaining out of all the things I'm experiencing? 
And the answer is if it's under the sun, if it's secular, if it's without God, it's nothing. But with God and Christ as the center, you gain everything. And so he asked the question again. Go back to chapter 3, verse 9. What gain, what profit has the worker from his toil? What profit is it? Why are these things happening? What's the point? Well, Solomon's going to give a theological explanation about how God is meticulously sovereign and absolutely sovereign over all things. And so he's going to give us four truths here about life under the sun and God's sovereignty. So here's truth number one. God has made everything appropriate for its time. Now look there in verse 11. He has made everything beautiful. Does your ESV say, does your translation say beautiful? Does anybody else have anything besides beautiful? Suitable. That's probably the better translation. Anybody else have anything different? When we think of beautiful, what do we think? Oh, that little baby's beautiful or that, that, that girl's beautiful. This doesn't really mean like good looking or anything to do with looks. That Hebrew word actually means in the context here, appropriate, fitting, proper, or suitable. God has made everything, again, it's back to that Hebrew word time, appropriate time. So God has made, everything has its appropriate, suitable, fixed time. Now think about that for a moment. Nothing is random. Now from our perspective, it may seem like it. But from God's perspective, is there anything random? We may not see how God's doing and we may not have the... um, the spiritual lens is on to see how God is behind the scenes orchestrating things, but everything, God, God has made it. Okay, notice it says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. He's made it. Does it say things just happen by chance? It says He's made it. God has made what? Everything appropriate, suitable in its right time. Now, these may be truths that you don't like to deal with, and that's okay, but they're in the Bible. So so God is sovereign in control of everything that happens for a purpose, everything. Number two, God has put eternity into the human heart. He has made everything beautiful in His time, and He has put eternity into man's heart yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Now, we are not animals. My dog, Kimber, my beagle, does not sit around and contemplate the meaning of life. He does not look up at the stars and think, there's got to be a heaven up there and there's a God I know out there. Kimber's not pining away wondering if he's going to find the love of his life. What is he content with? I get to pet him when he comes home. I feed him. I take care of him. I love on him. He has a place to stay. That's all dogs care about, right? Because they're animals. We are humans. What makes us different than animals? We as humans are created in God's image. And what that means is that we have a self-awareness that enables us to listen to Amazing Grace. No, we, we as humans are created in God's image to have a self-awareness 
that enables us to think about heaven and the future. We are created to be reflective. We can think about our past. We can think about our future. We are hardwired to want to know what happens to us after we die. We've been created to long for something deeper in this life than the monotony of the ticking clock. That's what it means to be created in God's image. You reflect, do you not? You think, you ponder, you wonder, you struggle with the meaning of life. You wonder what happens when you die. Even atheists do this. By the way, there's no such thing as an atheist. Every single person, Christian or non-Christian, is hardwired to have self-awareness that I am here on planet earth and there's probably something greater out there and you have a search for meaning. That's just the way we're hardwired. And that's why we're created in God's image. And that's what Solomon's saying here is that God has put eternity into the man's heart. There's a self-awareness. There's the desire to reflect a longing for heaven, a longing to know. Why do you think there's so many movies about space? Like what was the first big one that came out? Close Encounters. And then Star Wars. And then Star, I mean, all the different space exploration movies. Man, you know, space, the final frontier. We were, dogs don't sit around wondering if there's space. Dogs don't create the Hubble telescope. Now, maybe on some sitcom or something, you'd have something like that. But humans have created instruments to dissect the smallest molecule and instruments to look at the farthest galaxy because we are inquisitive and God has put that desire in us. Superdog? <laughs> in your world, Jerry, maybe he can't be. I don't know. <laughs> he could be. I don't know. Now, here's the thing that's frustrating. Here's the thing. I didn't mean, here's the thing. That's, he knows I'm just joking with him. Here's the thing that's frustrating about this. Notice what Solomon says. He doesn't just stop right there. Read the rest of the verse in verse 11. He has put eternity in a man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. That's the frustrating thing. Yeah, the frustrating thing is inquiring minds want to know, but does God always tell us? Does God have to tell us? Does God sometimes tell us? We can't get into the mind of God and get into the deep things of God and always know what God is doing. Anybody here ever like known 100% all the time what God was doing? No. Anybody here been frustrated because you thought God was not doing what you wanted him to do in the time that you wanted him to do it? And that's what Solomon's saying here. We have this longing to know... We have this longing for the beyond. We have this longing for heaven. We have this longing to to have um, this transcendence. But yet, God and His sovereignty has kept a lot of that from us. And I just plead Deuteronomy 29.29. And here's a good verse to live by. Deuteronomy 29.29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. What does that verse mean? There are some secret things that only God knows and will ever know and will choose not to show to us. He will not reveal those. Those are the secret things of God. But what He has revealed to us in His Word, we are accountable to obey. So has God been silent? 
No, he's given us his word. He's given us 66 books in the Bible that, that we know. We know a lot about God, do we not? We know everything we need to know about God from his word. If he wanted us to know more, he'd let us know more. But there's some secret things that God is keeping from us because he's God. And let me just ask you a question. You may not like that, but do you want to worship a God that's any less than that? Because then you can be God, be just like God. If you had all the answers and you knew everything that was going on and you were in control, would you even need God? Would there be a need for faith? So God sovereignly hides himself and is sovereign over time and sovereign over everything in your life as a way for you to depend and trust and rely upon him in faith. Okay? So truth number one, he's made everything meticulously, absolutely everything appropriate for its time. Number two, he's put eternity into the, heart, into the human heart. And here's the third one that, like last week, caught us off guard. It's going to catch us off guard again this week because it's the same thing. Here's number three. Enjoy God's gifts of food, drink, and work in the present. Remember, what, was, what does he say there? Verse 12, I perceived that there's nothing better for them to be joyful and to do good as long as they live, also that everyone should eat, drink, and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Now, what did we look at last week? Solomon had four experiments, right? Intellectualism, hedonism, wisdom over folly, and materialism, and all those experiments failed. And what was his conclusion? Don't worry about the future. Don't be all wrapped up and stressed out. God has given you three gifts to enjoy right here in the present. Food, drink, and your job. And they're his gifts, so enjoy it. And Solomon says it again. You can't control your future, can you? You can't control your past. What Solomon says is enjoy the present and realize that God's given you food, drink, and your job as a gift. He's made everything suitable over its time. So um, I'm getting ahead of myself here. We cannot at times understand the sovereign workings of an infinite God. Better yet, we cannot control God or his sovereign workings. So in light of our limitations, we should enjoy the gifts he gives us in the present as blessings from a good heavenly father. Now, Jesus talks about the goodness of our heavenly father. Does this mean we should never pray and just live fatalistic well, if God's got it all figured out and he's sovereign over everything and I might as well just sit back and never pray and never share the gospel, never do everything because God's got it all figured out. Does the Bible give you permission to do that? No, that's called passive fatalism. The Bible doesn't give you permission to do that. Is God sovereign? Yes. Are we responsible? Yes. How those two reconcile? I have no idea. I'm like Charles Spurgeon. I don't reconcile enemies because they're friends. God's sovereignty, human responsibility, they're friends. How it all works together? Here's a perfect example right here. Matthew 7, 7 through 11. Jesus tells us, ask, this praying, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who's in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? Solomon says those good things God has given to you are food, drink, and your job. So there is nothing wrong with going home and enjoying a good meal with your family and having a good Sprite <laughs> or beverage of your choice as long as you don't get drunk. We talked about that last week. 
and your job. This is where it was hard. Enjoy your, and we're going to talk about this next week too. He talks a lot about your work. So if, if you're struggling with your job, next week we're going to get more into the whole job thing. So enjoy your job as a gift from God. Now, here's the one that sums it all together. Here's truth number four. In case we didn't get it, we didn't get it at first with this declaration. We didn't get it with his poem. Here's the last thing he says. God's meticulous and absolute sovereignty cannot be thwarted, changed, or altered. Now, that's a strong statement, Pastor Sean. Where do you get that? Look at verse 14. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing taken away from it. God has done it so that people fear him. You can't add anything to what God has done. You can't subtract anything. God is going to do what God is going to do. So here's the fundamental question, Solomon. You've told us over and over again, this is you, Solomon. You've given us your thesis statement. You've told us in poetry. Does the Bible teach the absolute meticulous sovereignty of God over all things elsewhere in the Bible? Or is this just Solomon? Well, I'm glad you asked because i got a litany of verses. Whether you like them or not, what does the Bible teach about the sovereignty of God? Let's just look at some of these, Old Testament and New Testament. Psalm 33, 8-11. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. Why? For He spoke and it came to be. That's creation. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of His heart to all generations. If God has counsel and God has plans, can we stop those plans? We may think we can, but the counsel of the Lord stands forever. Psalm 135, 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and on the earth, in the seas and all the deeps. I heard a televangelist one time say that God can't do anything in the earth without our permission, and we give Him permission by praying and releasing power through our words to basically um, activate God's ability to move in the earth. He did not get struck by lightning at that moment. Yeah, yeah. Has anybody ever prayed, God, please keep the, the the please keep this planet from like getting off its gravitational pull? Do we ever pray prayers like that? God, you have permission. Yeah, God, you've. Artaxerdia tells a story. I, I always tell this story. You know, Artaxerdia has preached here before. And, you know, he's one of my favorite preachers. He was telling. I can't remember if that was one of the sermons I listened to, or if he he was telling me the story in his car one time when we were driving. But he was talking about how he was on vacation at a church. And his family was there, and he didn't really know who the pastor was. And so it was time for the pastoral prayer, you know, the prayer you usually pray right before you preach. And the pastor says, Lord, we command you to do such and such. And Lord, we command... And Art said, I looked up to see if he was still standing, because <laughs> he thought maybe... And so there's this whole attitude that... There's a very prevalent attitude out there that, in some circles, not in ours, but in some circles, that... God can't do anything without the permission of man. Do you want to worship a God like that? Okay. The whatever, not 
whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. Okay, that's a merism in heaven and in earth, the totality of everything. Psalm 16:4. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. I'll let you struggle with that one. Solomon would agree with that. The Lord has made everything for its purpose. Is that what we've just seen Solomon say? The Lord has not made some things for its purpose. The Lord has made everything, even the wicked, for the day of trouble. I'm just going to let that hang out there and let you struggle with that one. (laughs) Proverbs 16.33, when you go to Las Vegas, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Even the casting of lots is determined by God. How did they cast lots? Remember in Acts when they replaced Judas? Now, some people say that was superstition and they were doing that. Well, we're not to practice casting lots today, but God ordained the casting of lots back in that day as a way to make decisions. And he even controlled the outcome of the lots. So when you draw straws, it's not random. If you want to take it absolutely sovereign over all things, okay? Isaiah 14, 27, for the Lord of hosts has purpose. Look at these words, has purpose and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? What does it mean to annul? Cancel it. These are rhetorical questions. What's the answer to these rhetorical questions? The Lord of hosts has purposed it. Who will annul it? No one. His hand is stretched out. Who will turn it back? No one. Okay. Look at these terms the Lord has purposed. Look how many times the word purpose shows up in these. The Lord, Whatever the Lord purposes, His counsel, His plans, um, his, his ordained um, counsel, a lot of these different words. Okay, let's talk about Isaiah 29, 16. You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me, or the thing formed of him saying of him who formed it, he has no understanding. Who's the potter? God. Who's the clay? Us. But oftentimes do we, we reverse that, right? What do we think? I'm the potter and God's the clay. He's got to do, I can bend and mold and, and, and manipulate God to my timetable to do what I want. And what's he saying? That's not the way it works. You can't say to God, what are you doing? Why are you doing what you're doing? Um, Paul would have an answer to that in Romans 9. What would he say? Who are you, O oh man, to talk back to God? <laughs> Isaiah 45, 9. Woe to him who strives with, whom, with, with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms him, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. God, what are you... How often have we said that? God, what are you doing? You must have made a mistake, God. I get really bothered by terminology... And this is a pastor thing, so just bear with me when I talk about my nitpicky stuff. But when I listen to... Some, to, to not to you guys, but when I listen to um, other pastors and listen to theologians and listen to people in leadership, I pay attention to what they say. I'm not. If you say this, I'm not going to get on you because you're a layperson. Um, but... Those that have been trained know better. I get very nervous and uncomfortable when I hear pastors say, God is trying to do something. What does that mean, if God's trying to do something? It means he may or may not be able to do it. He's trying really hard, but he just can't do it. Does, God, does the Bible ever say God tries? Or does the Bible say God does? Okay. God does, did, or will do. It's not Yoda. Try or you must. It's not that. It's God. So Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. 
This is a pretty strong one. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. What do I do? I declare the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Does God know the future? Does he not just know the future, but does God control the future? Is God's counsel, counsel going to stand? Is God going to accomplish his purpose? Okay. Isaiah 64, 8. I told you I had a lot of verses here. But now, O oh Lord, you are our father. We are, the, we are the clay. You're our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Daniel 2, 21. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Now, newsflash. The next president of the United States has already been ordained by God. Now, that does not mean we should not vote. Okay? You did not hear me say that. I've heard some people say, well, if God's already ordained who the next president is, then you shouldn't vote. No, God uses means to accomplish his ends. Does God know who's going to get saved? Well, that means we shouldn't go evangelize. No. Does God know how to answer prayer? Well, that means we shouldn't pray. Okay, if you take that logic to its end, does God ordain who's going to be the next president? Yes. Does God know who it is? Not just knows, but does God ordain? Yes. But he uses means. And so go out and vote your conscience, but realize at the end of the day, the person that's in office is who God ordained it to be, whether we like it or not. And let me just say this. You may not like this. Sometimes the person in office is an act of judgment on the people. And God gives them God gives them what they want. Not maybe who he wants. Let me just give you an example. This just popped in my head. Think about Saul. How come Saul became king? What did Israel say? All the nations around us have kings and we want to have a king because all these nations around us have kings and we want to be all these. And they're like, well, what's his qualifications? You know what his qualification was? He was tall. And he was handsome. Is that what Don said? She's probably going to check in on Zach. He's tall and he's handsome. Well, that's, that's great. What about his character? What about his qualifications? We don't care. He's tall and he's handsome and all the other nations have kings. And so God says, okay, if that's what you want, that's what you get. And how did that work for him? It didn't work out. So sometimes God sovereignly gives a people the leaders that they want as an act of judgment on them. Now, I'm not saying that's necessarily going to happen to us, but I kind of am. So anyway, Daniel 4.35. All the inhabitants of the earth are recounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? God does according to his will. You can't stop him. And then my favorite, Job 42.2. I know that you can do some things. What does it say? I know you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. What does thwarted mean? Stopped or stymied or... Okay, so that's just Old Testament. Let's get to the New Testament. Is God sovereign over all things? Matthew 10, 29 through 30. Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? Is God sovereign over a bird dying? Yes, but even the hairs of your head are numbered. 
That's pretty sovereign, isn't it? Meticulous sovereignty. God knows. Some of you, it's easier than others. Um, God, <laughs> God, knows the, God knows the hairs on your head. Now, I, I just find that fascinating because if you know anything about hair, it grows and dies all the time, doesn't it? So it's always in flux. But God knows every single hair on your head. Even more important than when a sparrow dies. There's a sparrow that's dying out in a field somewhere that nobody ever sees, but God ordained that sparrow to die. And, and Jesus is saying, you're much more valuable than that. God knows the very hairs on your head. That's pretty meticulously sovereign. Okay, what does Paul say in Romans 11? Oh, that's how it's supposed to read it in the Greek. Oh, I'm so moved. Oh, that's how it's really supposed to read. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Nobody. Who's been His counselor? Anybody want to give God counsel? Anybody want to give God advice? Who's given Him a gift that He might be repaid? Anyone want to pay God back? Now here's the point. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. That's a pretty comprehensive statement. And then Ephesians 1.11 in him, we've been, in him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works out all things according to the counsel of His will. Not just some things, but He works out all things according to the counsel of His will. Now, let's just do a fun little exercise here about God's timing. What's, this, what's, what's, what's Solomon saying in Ecclesiastes 3? There is a perfect time for everything. A time to be born, a time, all the, you know, all those, those things. Well, let's talk about Jesus' timing, the timing of Christ. What about Jesus' birth? Galatians 4, 4 through 5. I don't know if you've ever like, paid attention to this as you've read these statements. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Did Jesus come at just the right time? In the fullness of time, God sent Jesus to be born. What about Jesus' preaching ministry? Mark 1, 14-15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The time is at hand. The time is fulfilled. What about Jesus' arrest? John 7.30. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. It wasn't God's perfect time yet for Jesus to be arrested. They tried. What about Jesus' death? John 13.1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus knew his hour had come. It's time for me to die. This is the Thursday night before Good Friday, the night of his, his betrayal. Well, actually, this is probably a little bit earlier. John 17.1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. He's in the garden of Gethsemane praying this right before he's be arrested. Okay. Romans 5, 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now let's just talk about Christ's death for a moment. Why 
did Jesus die when he did? You may say, what was God's time? Yes. But let me just tell you something. Nowhere else in the history of the world was there death by crucifixion than during the Roman period of Jesus' time. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He couldn't have died 100 years earlier because there was no crosses. It would have been stoning or spearing to death. So even the timing that Jesus was born in the Roman Empire, crucifixion was the mode of death. And Deuteronomy predicted that, didn't they? Cursed is everyone who's hung on a cross. Well, they didn't have crosses back in Deuteronomy's time. Well, they would when Jesus came at just the right time. What about Jesus' return? Acts 1.67, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. What's God done? God's fixed. And then 1 Timothy 6.13-15, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. When is Jesus going to appear? At the proper time. What does Solomon say? For everything there's a season and a time for every matter under heaven. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it. Here's the kicker. Here's the conclusion. Why has God done all this? The conclusion in verse 14. So that people would fear him. Why does, why, why did, why does God do what he does? Why is God absolutely sovereign? Why does God set the times? Why is God meticulously in control of all things? Is it so we can sit back and say, hey, I'm in charge? Or as Solomon says here, is it for us to fear him? Now, what does it mean to fear? Let's talk about the fear of the Lord. The word in the Hebrew means to tremble in awe and respect and honor before the living God who's sovereign. It literally can mean a, um, a shaking, a trembling. Now, a healthy dose of God's sovereignty is going to make you aware of your helplessness. It's going to make you aware that you can't control Him. It's going to make you dependent upon Him. And that's going to lead you to fear and worship Him. Now, what's the fear of the Lord? Let me teach you a Hebrew word. Yar. Yar, I mean... So, yar is the Hebrew word for fear. Uh, the Greek word for fear is phobos. That's a little easier. We get what? What word do we get from phobos? Phobia. Okay. Now, when the Bible speaks of fear, there are two types of fear that the Bible speaks of. And depending on the context, the Greek word or the Hebrew word is used, but depending on the context, it may mean something different. There is a terror fear of God. And there is a worship fear of God. And you see both of those. Let's look at how this unfolds throughout the Bible, this word fear. 
It goes all the way back to um, Adam and Eve. So in Genesis chapter 3, 8 through 10, after they sinned, what's the first thing they do? They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. I was fearful because I was naked and I hid myself. What kind of fear is that? Is that worship fear or terror fear? Terror fear. I'm afraid that God's going to kill me, so I'm hiding from him. And I love the way God says, where are you? Did God know where he was? It's almost like a courtroom scene. It's just to get Adam to realize, come out from behind the bushes. I know you're naked. It doesn't bother me. Um, so, you know, he's hiding because he's, he's guilty. Okay. Now let's look at, look at Moses at the burning bush. Exodus 3, 5 through 6. God said to Moses, Do not come near, take your sandals off for your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Terror or worship? Could be a combination. I mean... Probably more worship fear. I mean, if you see a burning bush, are you going to be a little freaked out? Okay. But I don't think God was going to kill Moses. God was going to reveal himself to Moses. So it's probably more of a worship fear. Same Hebrew word. Okay. Um, Deuteronomy, when the, when the nation of Israel was at the face of, of Mount Sinai in the wilderness, and you remember the mountain was shaking and there was earthquakes. You also see this back in Exodus chapter 19. But in Deuteronomy 5, 4 through 5, The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain out of the midst of the fire, while I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up to the mountain. What type of fear was that? Terror fear. Okay. So, in the Scriptures... There is a legitimate fear that manifests itself in terror. It usually happens when God shows up in fire and holiness. It usually involves smoke and shaking and earthquakes. Oftentimes, the people react by falling down in fear. Deuteronomy 10, 12-13. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I command you today for your good. To fear the Lord. Now, is that worship fear or is that terror fear? That's worship fear. Okay, so part of fearing the Lord is walking in His ways, to loving Him, serving Him. Psalm 19, 9 through 10. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than the drippings of the honeycomb. Uh, let's see here. Psalm 25, 10 through 12. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep His covenant and His testimonies. For your namesake, so, for your namesake O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. Fear the Lord. Psalm 33, 8-9. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to me. He commanded and it stood firm. <clears throat> Psalm 103, 11 and 12. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove transgressions from us. In Psalm 
118.4, Let those who fear the Lord say His steadfast love endures forever. We also have Proverbs 1.7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 31.30, Charm is deceitful and beauty is in vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. And in Job 28.28, And he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. So all throughout the Bible, we are called to fear the Lord. Now, as Christians who have been saved by God's grace, whom God has poured out His justice on Jesus and the cross in our place, who never have to worry about being forsaken by God or sent to hell, should we ever respond to God in terror or fear? No. You respond in terror or fear to God as a judge. You respond in worship fear to God as a father. As a Christian, is God your judge or your father? He's your father. As a non-Christian, is God your judge or your father? He's your judge. Okay? So, depending on the context in the Bible, sometimes it's appropriate for people to respond in terror or fear. If they're lost and they're in their sins and they need to repent and they're, they're fearing for their life um, because they don't have a right relationship with God, there needs to be a terror fear. But the, the fear that we're talking about here, the fear that Solomon's talking about is this worship fear of God. And so Ed Welch has written a pretty good book. Um, it's, it's got an interesting title, When People Are Big and God is Small. I would encourage you, if you struggle with self-esteem issues, don't raise your hand because nobody wants to. If you struggle with self-esteem issues or insecurity, this book is really good. Because this book talks about how oftentimes we live in the fear of what other people think. We give into peer pressure. We give into all these things because we're trying to please people. And so the whole point is that we live as if people are big and God is small. And we really need to live as if God is big and people are small. And so Ed Welch, is, he's, he's kind of a Christian psychologist that's pretty, pretty reputable. But he gives this definition. He writes, The fear of the Lord means reverent submission that leads to obedience, and it is interchangeable with worship, rely on, and hope in. The Bible teaches that God's people are no longer driven by terror fear or fear that has to do with punishment. Instead, we are blessed with worship fear, the reverential awe motivated more by love and honor that is due Him. Now, what about the New Testament? Does the New Testament talk about fearing the Lord, phobos, different types of fear? We can see it in the New Testament as well. Matthew 10, 28-31, Jesus says, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are more valuable than the sparrows. Now, I, I, I put that in there earlier, but now I'm giving the full context. Do you see two types of fear in that passage of Scripture? You see terror fear and worship fear in there. What's the terror fear? God can send you to hell. Now, is that a terror fear or worship fear? But if you're His and He has your head numbered, fear not, you're more valuable than the sparrows. So notice what He says here. 
fear, fear not. Which one is it? As Christians, we are to worship, fear God out of reverence, never out of terror or um, worried that somehow we're going to get punished because that's been punished on Christ. Acts 9.31 So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. What's What's a sign of a healthy church? It's being built up. It has peace. The Holy Spirit's present and people are walking in the fear of the Lord. They're, they're worshiping the Lord. 2 Corinthians 7.1 Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Paul tells us in Philippians 2.12-13 Therefore, my beloved, as you've also always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work according to His good pleasure. What about the book of Revelation? You see a lot of fear in the book of Revelation. Revelation 11.18 The nations rage, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Those who fear your name. Revelation 14.7, And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Notice how fear and worship are put there together. And then Revelation 19.5-6, And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you His servants, you who fear Him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Fear. The Lord. So, as we've seen from Genesis to Revelation, she must have cut out that. Um, oh, and there it is. As we've seen from Genesis to Revelation, God calls upon all people to fear His name, to stand in awe of His holiness, to bow in humble adoration, to submit ourselves to His lordship, to worship Him in reverence, to fear the Lord Almighty. Now, Let's go back to Ecclesiastes. Solomon tells us that God is absolutely and meticulously sovereign over all things in verse 14, so that, what's the purpose of this? We would fear Him, worship Him, stand in awe of Him. And so here's what happens. When we daily live in light of our limitations and weaknesses, and we constantly focus on the sovereignty of God over all things, our hearts will respond with awe. Here's what I can't do. I can't make you fear God. Nobody can make you fear God. I can't force you to fear God. What would happen if I said, fear God? Okay, Sean, I will. I can threaten you. How do you really fear God? Here's the answer. The more you think about, worship, and contemplate the absolute sovereignty of God, the more you will fear Him. 
So here's, here's how, if you want to, if you want to strengthen or heighten or grow in your fear of the Lord, spend more time thinking about his sovereignty over all things. It's a direct proportion. The more you think about, the more you contemplate, the more you live in light of God's sovereignty over all things, that you're dependent upon Him, that you are weak, that you can't control Him, the more you do that, your fear and worship of Him will grow in proportion to how much you worship Him for His sovereignty. It's, it's, an, it's, it's, a, it's a natural re- response, maybe supernatural. It's a response to God's character that leads you to fear Him. I can't make you fear God, but the more that you, and this is what Solomon's saying, the more that you understand God's sovereignty over all things, the more you will fear Him. Hebrews 12, 28-29 says this, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. I'm thankful that we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship, What kind of worship is acceptable? With reverence and awe. Why? For our God is a consuming fire. God loves us. God is sovereign. God has given us a kingdom. It can't be shaken. He's in control. In light of that, what are we to do? Worship Him. How are we to worship Him? With reverence and awe. Why? He's a consuming fire. Could God consume us all off the planet right now? with the snap of his finger, if he had a finger. God doesn't have a finger because he doesn't have a body. But could God destroy us all if he wanted to? Yes. But what has God done in his love? He's chosen to send Jesus to die in our place to take that punishment so that you and I would never have to experience that terror fear of God because Christ took upon our sin. And so when we become Christians... Our sins are taken to Christ and His righteousness is given to us and we relate to God now as a father, a good father, and we are to worship Him with awe and reverence. One thing that we see a lot in our church cultures today is this casual, flippant attitude towards God. You know, a youth pastor gets up and I've, heard, I've actually heard people pray to God like this, Dude! They called God Dude. Jesus taught us to say our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. And so even the way that we pray, we're to approach God with fear and trembling, not because he's going to smite us or not because he's going to you know, like come down upon us, but because we're entering into the presence. Like Moses, we're entering into the presence of the holy. Take off your shoes. You're, you're on holy ground. We're in the presence of a transcendent God who is absolutely sovereign. Let's, let's respond to him that way. Do, do you think there's a flippancy in a lot of churches or among a lot of people today in their attitude towards God? Flip, what do I mean by flippancy? Flippant. Casual. Yeah, that they don't care. So here's the bottom line. This is the takeaway I think Solomon wants us to take away. A constant understanding of your weakness in light of God's absolute sovereignty will move you to worship and obedience but I think it needs to be constant. Everything, every moment, every aspect, every experience, God is sovereign over all those things. And why is He doing this? We may never know, but ultimately He's doing it so we can fear Him, we can worship Him, we can love Him. Now, 
we've got a little bit of time for questions or comments and a few snide remarks if you dare to give those. Do you agree or disagree that our, not to say just a manual, I'm, I'm, I'm not a manual, I don't think, but just in general, the evangelical landscape, do you sense that there is a lessening in awe, worship, fear of a transcendent, sovereign God? And if you shake your head and say, yes, I want to know why, or an example, without mentioning names or anything, but what, what are you seeing? Okay. Okay. Well, we've lost the idea of respect. Like we really, I would probably say, well, honestly, probably people thirty years and younger really don't have a grasp of the meaning of respect anymore. And because probably starting in the I don't know, at least the seventies, there was that big movement of you know love everybody and God <laughs> is love and you know God is your buddy. Right. rather than your Lord and Savior and the king of your life. You know, he was more, you know, somebody that just kind of came alongside yeah. rather than falling down on your knees in yeah. respect for. And, and our whole society, you know, just, yeah. I guess as a teacher and seeing kids in the classroom and comparing it, you know, to when I was in school or even when my kids were starting kindergarten, the change of attitude. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody feels like they're their own, I mean, it's like, I'm my own God, yeah. and I, you know, why do I need to respect, yeah. you know, Him? Yeah. And so, yeah. is that you know, part of what our churches are teaching them to? There's so many of them saying, whatever feels good, do mm-hmm. it. And okay. Even you go as far, and I don't mean to be like, oh, we need to go back and be so restricted that people can't be comfortable in church. But, you know, I can remember as a little kid going to church with my grandmother in the summertime when I would go to visit her and, you know, she would not, like, I could not turn my head, you know, to see what was happening behind her. She'd go, no, you don't look behind you. And, of course, that just made you want to look even yeah. more. Yeah. Back there. Yeah. Um, but you, you didn't, and you didn't run through the sanctuary. And, you, yeah. you know, um, and communion was very uh, sacred. Yeah. And, you know, and so you learned, you were kind of taught yeah. to have that respect. And it doesn't yeah. happen as much yeah. anymore. Well, let me go off on a tangent. And a, and a little rant. Is that okay? Yeah. I don't have a microphone, but I'm here. Um, there's been a lot of news lately about Andy Stanley. I'm going to name drop. I did a podcast last week. Um, let me just kind of give you the, the background here. Um, some of you are laughing. I don't know if you listened to it. Or, I, I thought he was part of the Saturday Night Live. Andy Stanley? Yeah, I didn't think he was real. I thought it was part of Saturday Night Live. Oh, when you saw that? Yeah. Oh, wow. Oh, he's a real pastor. Um, he's Charles Stanley's son. He's Charles Stanley's son. Um, he is the pastor of one of the largest churches in America, North Point Church in Atlanta. And for a long time, he's done a lot of good stuff. Um, but back at the end, back about three weeks ago, um, he was at a conference, a Southern Baptist conference, where Russell Moore, who's the director of this um, organization, basically interviewed him about how to engage the culture without compromising the gospel. And basically, his whole philosophy of ministry is, and this were his words, we need to take the spotlight off the Bible and put it back on the resurrection, which doesn't make any sense because how do you know about the resurrection without the Bible? So here's how he says, here's how we do church. He goes, I think about 
a three and a half hour sermon and we spread it out over six weeks. So the first Sunday, you may come, and he goes, a couple weeks ago, our, the first Sunday of the sermon series, we didn't have any singing, we didn't have any prayers, I didn't preach from the Bible, because we wanted to make people feel comfortable. And this atheist wrote in and said, I really liked your church because it made me feel comfortable. And then the next week, they kind of introduced some more Christian songs, and finally by the fourth week, they feel like people are maybe warmed up enough that he's going to give a little bit of a message. Now, I have a major problem with that um, because on a lot of levels, number one, it says what you believe about God's word. Number two, it says what you believe about the purpose of the church. And number three, uh, so attitudes like that are permeating the younger generation to where we want to be culturally relevant to reach people so that they won't be offended. And how dare we have them have a transcendent experience with an almighty God. Now, let me ask you a question. What actually changes people's lives? Is it funny skits or is it God's Word? So the more faithful you are in preaching God's Word, the higher probability you're going to have people's lives changed. Would you agree? Okay. This younger generation almost thinks it's the exact opposite. We're embarrassed of God's Word because it has so many different, in their words, inconsistencies and people have objections with it. So we want to... And I'm, I'm all for, like, I don't want to have unne- unnecessary barriers when people come to church. But when you take the spotlight off the Bible, what becomes the spotlight? The show. The show. Okay. So when you look at, let me just take you to a passage of Scripture. Um, it's in 1 Corinthians. And we'll, we'll close on this. Uh, because I think this is really what we want to see in worship services. This is what I want to see in worship services. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 24. I'm not going to get into a whole discussion on speaking in tongues. That's not the point of this passage of Scripture. But I want to talk about what we'd like to see happen in church. So 1 Corinthians 14, 24. You guys there? 14, 24 through 25. Paul's talking to a church, the church in Corinth. He's giving them instructions on how they are to have orderly worship services. And Paul says, this is what we really want to see happen. If all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He's called to account by all. 1 Corinthians 14, 24 and 25. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever outsider enters, he's convicted by all, he's called to account by all, the secrets of his heart is closed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. How is that going to happen? How is an outsider or a non-believer going to come in and be convicted, be held account, his heart's going to be under conviction, he's going to fall on his face, he's going to worship God and say, the transcendent living God is truly here. How's that going to happen without the Word of God being preached, without the holiness of God being stressed, without a high view of God? And so Paul expects outsiders or unbelievers to be in church, does he not? We want outsiders and unbelievers to be in church, do we not? But we don't cater a worship service to their needs. We cater our worship service to worship God. And as an outsider comes in and sees us worshiping the Most High God and having a high view of the Scriptures, God will sovereignly use that to break their heart and then they will fall on their face and worship Him. 
But I think this younger generation is afraid to do what the Bible teaches because slick marketing and relevant stuff is what's going to get people to come through the doors. And here's an old adage. What you win them with, you better keep them with. So you better keep the machine going each week bigger and better because that's what they're expecting. So if they come to church just thinking like, okay, so Emmanuel, you, it's what you get. You, what you see is what you get from each week. We're not going to do anything flashy to try to get you to come in because if we did that, then I'd have to be thinking up all the time, what can I do flashy the next week to keep them? And so what my whole ministry is based upon keeping the customer happy as opposed to preaching the Word of God. And then you have a market-driven church where you do stuff based upon lost people's tastes versus upon what the Word of God is. So the sheep aren't getting fed, the goats are getting entertained, and you're not honoring God. Okay, so I've stopped preaching and um, my little rant. Yes, Bob? Uh, sounds real good and everything, and I think the, the comeback, and I'm not saying it's, all wrong or all true either, but the idea is people can't handle the church. They, they have to learn some of it. They may be able to take in half of it at a time. And so the idea is, you know, if you, if, so sometimes it's so strong that it just, they don't want even a part of it. And mm-hmm. so the idea maybe is they're trying to win them slowly. And I, yeah, I understand. I understand their heart. I'm not impugning his motive. I think he has a good motive to want to reach lost people. I just think maybe his model is not as close to the biblical model as we'd, as we'd see. Is that okay? Yeah, I'm not going to impugn his motive. I think Andy Stanley's motive is to see lost people get saved, which is good. I think he's just going about it in a way that's compromising. So you can go listen to James White on um, Alpha and Omega Ministries podcast. He's been doing a three-part series interacting with it. I did a podcast on it. I, I posted an um, article on Facebook from a professor at Reformed Theological Seminary that interacted with Andy Stanley. And um, it's, it's gotten a lot of traction because he is probably one of the, the most influential pastors of younger pastors in our generation. 32,000 people at his church. I'm not saying that he, everything in his church is wrong. I'm just saying that when you go down that slope, what the things he's saying now, let me just tell you, the things he's saying now, Southern Baptists were saying back in the 70s during the whole liberal, right before the convention almost split, before the conservative resurgence. So those attitudes are planting the seeds for denying inerrancy, the authority of Scripture, and then the next thing that's going to go is, you know what the next thing that's going to go? The whole homosexual issue. Because if you take the authority of the Bible out, then you can make it say, then, then, then you've taken that out, then you can basically capitulate on that issue. And I think that our culture is so afraid to address what the Bible says that they're going to try to, they're going to, try to excuse sinful behavior. And the way they do that is they go back and they deny the authority of the Bible. Well, that's what it meant back then. That's what it meant back then. We've evolved. We've come to a better understanding now. That was Paul's day. And so um, one of the things that we are, one of the things that we're wanting to put into our doctrinal statement as we think about the future of, of Emmanuel in light of all this stuff, and we put stuff in like this, the document that you guys all signed last year when the Supreme Court about um, you know, our stance on marriage gender, but uh, one of the things that we want to make sure that we communicate is that there is a fixed historical meaning of the Bible that does not change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Right. Because, yeah, and, and most people, most Christians are going to give lip service that they believe the Bible. I believe the Bible. Well, do you believe the totality of the Bible? Do you believe it's inspired? Do you believe it's authoritative? Do you believe it's inerrant? Oh, I don't know about that. So, anyway. In safe space? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, our church is not a safe space. <laughs> so you cannot bring your cuddly dog into... No, I'm just joking. Don't tiptoe around things. I mean, yeah. honestly. Yeah. I mean, look at our kids these days. Don't do this because you could hurt someone's feelings. Don't do that because, oh, man, someone might take it wrong. It's like, it's not just a new generation, though. I mean, you can say there was correctness back in the 60s. You can keep saying young generation, young generation. It's getting worse and worse. We're all sinners. We're all the same. Yeah. So. It started, yeah, it started back like we talked about last week or a couple weeks ago. It started with Cain and Abel. Cain killed Abel without television, video game violence, and pornography because <laughs> it was in his heart. Okay. So, all right, guys, it's 8 o'clock, and it's time for us to go, and so let's pray. And Father, thank you for, uh, I, Lord, I thank you for your sovereignty. It's been a good reminder tonight to just look at these scriptures about just how sovereign you are over all things. And, Lord, that's not a scary thing. Um, it's a soft pillow for us to put our heads on at night, to know that you're in control and that no plan of yours can be thwarted. And, Lord, it leads us to fear you. So, Lord, help us to worship you more deeply. Help us to walk in reverence and fear of you, uh, not afraid but, Lord, just in awe, because you are so great. Uh, thank you for this time together, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.